This podcast and the many that follow are proudly brought to you by our partner, Titleist, the number one ball in golf. Now, as it relates to earning an edge, our friends at Titleist have been the leaders since the early 1900s. And in order to compete and win at the highest level, frankly, there's no room for second best. For this reason, the best players in the world trust Titleist. Welcome to the Earn Your Edge podcast. I'm Corey Lumberg with Altus Performance, and we are very excited to share another great conversation with you this week as we have not one but two Australian accents on this week's episode. One will, of course, be our very own Cameron McCormick, and the other one will be one of the most recognizable voices in all of golf, Ian Baker-Finch, major champion and now commentator with CBS. Cam and Ian share a really cool conversation that will end up being our longest episode yet, over 60 minutes of wisdom from a guy that has been through plenty of ups and downs in his career, including, like I said, a major win, British Open champion, and then over the last three decades, has either played along with or covered for TV the the greatest players in the game. And I have to admit to not really knowing very much about Ian's backstory, but he and Cam dig deep into what is really a fascinating story of his development in Australia uh, and then rise to one of the best players on the PGA Tour. Along with the various ways that he was able to earn an edge throughout his career, specifically, uh, they do a great job of covering the importance of resiliency and confidence, the sources of both of those factors. So sit back and enjoy a great discussion between these two Aussies. Before we get started, we want to recognize the winner of our latest giveaway for the Titleist TS driver, which is Nathan Graff, who was able to refer the most new subscribers to the podcast. Nathan got over 70 friends to subscribe, which is unbelievable. We're, we're incredibly appreciative that he helped us spread the word. So Nathan, we've got a new Titleist TS driver coming to you soon. Shout out to Nathan. But now on to Ian and Cam. Enjoy the show. Hello, I'm Cameron McCormick, and I want to welcome you to the Earn Your Edge podcast. By passion and by practice, we at Altus are driven to decode the difference makers that high performers possess, the ways and means they use to earn their edge, to create separation from the mass, to leave mediocrity in the rearview mirror and travel, a pathway to mastery. Be it through nature or nurture, or a mixture of both, the journey to uncover these things is the journey that we're on. And growing up in Australia, my guest today was one of just a few of my idols. I fondly recall times in the middle of the night when I should have been sleeping, but yet I was cheering him on watching him compete all over the world. His roll call of achievements competing in the game of golf is long, with an influence off the course even more substantial. Today, we're joined by the 1991 Open champion, Ian Baker Fincher, as anyone who knows him calls him Finchie. Finchie, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks very much, Cameron. Great to be with you. Outstanding, outstanding. So, in the preamble, before we got on live here, we had talked about kind of the structure of these things. And as the um, introduction suggests, we're trying to unpack how greatness happens, how high performance happens. So I think the most important starting place is those formative years. So if you could take us through, what do you remember about your early years of sampling the sport of golf? Well, it was, it was a different way of becoming a professional golfer back in the day to the, to the ways of today. Certainly different to here in the US with the college system and, and so much unbelievable tuition and information sharing by the likes of yourself, you know, these world-class coaches being able to nurture these young students through the game from a very young age, they, they become uh, excellent performers. With me, I grew up on a farm. My dad started 
to play golf because of Arnold Palmer legitimizing golf to the masses back in the 60s. And he and a few other farmers in the area got together and built a little golf course on some land that was donated by the forestry department in our uh, farming town. And uh, I started to play and caddy for him when I was about 10 and uh, became quite good at it. Got my first set of clubs when I was 12 and just fell in love with the game and didn't go through the, the amateur ranks as many do because the team in my state consisted of Greg Norman, Wayne Grady, Jeff Senior, Peter Senior, Ozzie Moore, so many uh, fantastic players that were six or five years older than me. So I turned pro at 15 to do an apprenticeship with a pro at a golf club at Gympie Golf Club and then Caloundra Golf Club up in Queensland's Sunshine Coast. So I, I didn't go through those uh, state teams and uh, Australian AMs and all of the big tournaments that so many amateurs do. Yeah. So that was that was a start. You know, it was my, my later days of high school and college were as a young professional trying to find my way in the golfing world or in a, in a fledgling career, you know, in my teens, basically. So a little different to today, that's for sure. Yeah, massively different. So in the interest of not many people understanding the geography of Australia, I think we should give our audience, which is a worldwide audience, some perspective. So I have a couple of questions. Let's try and locate mm -hmm. you geographically relative to greater population, so the biggest city outside of your hometown. And then the follow-up question would be, if it weren't for the nine-hole golf course that was built through those donated funds and donated land, how close was the next available golf course for you to go and play and practice at? Oh, okay. So Sunshine Coast is just north of Brisbane. Brisbane's a city of three million people on the same latitude south as, say, uh, Florida, where I live now. It's sort of 26 degrees south. In Florida, it's 26 degrees north, so it's a very similar climate. And farming area of where I grew up was about 60 miles from the city, and no one my age played golf. I, when I went to Caboolture High School, which is just north of Brisbane, it was an hour and a quarter on the bus to get from my town to that town where the high school was and where mm -hmm. probably the nearest golf course was and because of my good play and winning the state schoolboy titles a couple of times they started a golf program at that school because of me there wasn't one previously so that's sort of that era 72 73 74 that that time golf was just sort of kicking off if you will in the farming areas outside the cities mm-hmm so it was, a, it was a remote area, but it was also one where, you know, there was a lot of little clubs and people played golf and the sport was, was growing. And thanks to Arnold Palmer and Jack Nicholas and Gary Player, the big three, they, they really legitimized, as, as you probably well know, uh, golf around the world at that time. Yeah. And growing up at that period of time, how well did you know of the prominent players of that time? I mean, sh surely that wasn't um, broadcast on Australian TV all that much. No, there was a couple of tournaments that were on television and uh, when the big players like the big three would come and play, there'd be some golf on television. And also the big three, they had a, a tournament of those three as they travelled around the world and that would be telecast. And then, of course, the Open Championship and the Masters. We always watched the Open. And I remember watching Tom Weisskopf win in, at Troon in 1973 and Gary Player at Lytham in 74 and Tom Watson at... Uh, Carnoustie in 75, beating Jack Newton, one of our Australian heroes. So mm -hmm. there, was, there was golf 
available to us, but it wasn't like 24-7 like it is now on the Golf Channel. <laughs> sure. And what other sports were you involved in as a young guy that, let's say, may have um, enhanced your ability to transfer some sort of skill to the sport of golf when you started at 10 years old and got turned professional at 15, which is unfathomable, quite frankly, but <laughs> it's an amazing story. It sounds strange, doesn't it? But back in those days, the Australian PGA mentoring system and, and program was one like a an apprenticeship, like if you wanted to be a carpenter or a bricklayer, a metal worker, whatever, that you did an apprenticeship. And that's what we did. I left school after grade 10, did that apprenticeship from 15 to 18 with a with a registered golf pro. And he brought me through and helped me and guided me. And then basically, I was an A-class pro at the age of 18. Mm -hmm. The sports before then, I loved cricket. I was probably medium slow, but I thought I was pretty fast. <laughs> I, lo I loved tennis because tennis was a solo thing. I could go, you know, bash, hit tennis balls against the wall of the house for hours at a time. I could, you know, do, do stuff by myself and uh, loved all sports, basically. Didn't play a lot of football because we were so remote. There weren't enough people to actually make a team and it was a, a long travel to go, uh, go train or be in a part of a team in those early uh, teen years. But once I got winning at golf, I really didn't play that much of the other sports. Still played a bit of tennis, obviously, for fun, but golf took over at the age of 15. And, you know, I think all Aussies play all sports because we're a year-round weather. Mm -hmm. You know, the, the, the weather is so good, we can, we can play year-round. And that I would encourage parents, if anyone's listening and trying to raise their children, there's so many now that want to send them to golf camps and golf schools and, and just have them play golf from the age of 10 only, I would encourage them to have their kids play as many other sports as possible and get a get that team atmosphere and, you know, strengthen other muscle groups and just get a, a much better uh, understanding of sport in general yeah, and, sure. and the body and, and abilities, right? I, th I think I'm sure you'd agree with me. It's essential. Right. There's a great dearth of research out there that suggests, and in fact, not suggests, but confirms the benefits of, let's say, pulling um, strengths, uh, pulling capacities from other sports into the sport of golf, whether you're talking about from a physical skill standpoint, but just as much when you're pulling from the need to coordinate team actions and uh, team endeavor, like the singular goal of scoring, if you will, in basketball requires teamwork, the singular goal of scoring a touchdown in, in football. Each person has their role and it's an important role to play in um, that, that teamwork, that attitude of growing together is an important, uh, let's say, uh, piece of the puzzle of learning to become a well-rounded athlete. So I couldn't agree more. So I think I get the picture of a young boy that's isolated geographically uh, from big population, isolated from opportunity to do a lot in um, in a big peer group, and has exposure to many other sports. And one thing that we've come to understand is that excellence or high performance does not emerge without the positive influence of those around. So, can you speak to? First off, your parents' role in supporting your development as a person and as a golfer, and then any other formative relationships you mentioned there that you had five or six years older than you. It was it was it was Greg Norman and it was Wayne Grady, etc., and, and some older Australians as well. One prominent mm -hmm. one that unfortunately we lost most recently. So formative uh, formative years, those relationships and the roles that your parent parents played. 
Uh, mum and dad, I was the youngest of six kids and they were, they were hardworking farmers. So there wasn't a lot of mum and dad driving me to sport and watching me play back in those days. It was, um, you know, shared parents from the region would, would, uh, take their truck or their, or their ute or whatever and pile all the kids in the back and get them to these sporting events with golf. It was dad would, uh, would play. So we'd go down on the weekends and play. And then as I was at high school, the bus, went past the golf course so in the afternoons at 4 30 i'd get off the bus take my clubs take the ridicule from everyone on the bus that <laughs> i was going to go play golf and i was the only one that did so uh and and go hit balls till dark and mum would drive down six miles from home to the course to uh to pick me up so probably similar to a lot of kids just a lot of time spent by myself on the range trying to get better if I played really well and finished second in an event, Dad would say, why the bloody hell didn't you win? <laughs> so I had, had a lot of tough love there from Dad and uh, a lot of time spent from Mum driving me around everywhere. So really good, solid, strong, basic help from, from the parents. So let's take a quick break in the action to recognize one of our partners, Under Armour. It's Under Armour's mission to make all athletes better through passion, design, and the relentless pursuit of innovation. And that ethos or mission statement couldn't be more aligned with the Earn Your Edge podcast. We're thankful to be powered by Under Armour. How important do you think that tough love was to harden you to help you develop a um, a Kevlar vest, so to speak, to aid in enduring the tough times that inevitably will come playing any sport i don't say it's essential that you receive that sort of uh guidance or upbringing or or as you say tough love i don't think it's essential but i i don't know many that haven't had some sort of that you can't be coddled and get tough and you have to have skin you know Im Im impervious like an armadillos at times mm -hmm. you have to you have to be capable of blocking it all out and being tough and how you achieve that is uh, there's so many avenues. I look at, at your young man that's been just such a tremendous star and, uh, and, and leader in the game, Jordan Spieth. He has had an amazing rise to where he is now, his 10 years from when you first started seeing him, probably more like a dozen years now. Mm -hmm. He had so much available to him, but what he's got from his family and his friends and his uh, his mum and dad, obviously, but just his family environment has made him or, or has certainly helped make him what he is. You know, that just everything around, there's so many different aspects of it, isn't there? Yeah, sure. But that, uh, I think my dad basically telling me it's, it's tough and if it's not hurting, you're not doing it hard enough and those sorts of things got me that little step beyond my peers at that time, you know, that allowed me to do a little better or win here on tour or win a major. Sure. Um, so I do think there's a tremendous amount of however you receive it, whether it's from parents or coaches or, or, or your peers, you have to be able to be tough and resilient, especially at the times when you need it most, if you're going to be a, a, a consistent champion. Yeah, I, I agree. So I look back on that and, and totally, uh, love my dad for it at the time it was it was tough because it was uh you know some sometimes you needed a hug when you ran second you mm -hmm. didn't need a kick in the pants but <laughs> i think <laughs> i strove for 
for uh, not so much excellence. I, it's, if I can just uh, digress a little bit here, I never really saw myself being number one. You know, some kids, and we talk about it on TV a lot, and I don't mean to jump ahead here, but this is great. some people like Jason Day, and I'm sure Jordan, and, and many others, Rory, they were great when they were young and they got better and better and better and they just drove themselves to be number one because that's what they wanted and that was their goal. And when I was getting better and improving and proving to myself along the way that I could be an international star, I just wanted to be top 10 or I saw myself as being someone that was always there, sort of biting at the heels of the guys that were number one. I didn't particularly want to be number one. I was happy being the best I could be, and I just didn't really think that whether or not I didn't think I was capable of being number one or whether I didn't like the top of the mountain or whatever it was. But when I did get into the top 10, I was so proud of myself and happy that that's really where I was trying to get to. Sure. So uh, some some strive to be one and believe in themselves enough, and, and some don't. But that doesn't make them – you know, I, I think a lot of commentators uh, are a little down on those that – are happy to be on the PGA Tour and grinding it out and trying to be the best they can, but it's not a it's not a slight on their abilities. They just perhaps don't want to be Jason Day or Justin Thomas or Dustin Johnson or Jordan Spieth. You know, that's heady. That's uh, that's very uh, rare and 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 light atmosphere way up there. And it comes with it a set of burdens that you can't possibly fathom until you reach that. But it was a great digression right there. In fact, there's a great body of research out there that differentiates goal orientation into two buckets, ego versus uh, mastery orientation. And what you're describing as personal mastery, that was your orientation. That was your top of the mountain. And, and that was something you measured not by any standard of ranking in the world, whether that be professional or amateur or even junior golf. It was something you measured probably daily or weekly. And if you felt like you were getting better as a golfer, then you were quite content in that effort aggregated over time landed you some um, pretty amazing opportunities and some pretty amazing achievements mm. over an entire career of professional golf that I've followed and, 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 and like I said, idolized to a great extent for a long time. So thank you for that influence. You made a, made a comment there about that personal mastery. And, and one question I wanted to unpack or understand is when did you, it's kind of a two-part question, mm -hmm. when did you think or know that you were pretty darn good at this golf thing? And, and when did that turn into, man, I want to continue with this. And then at 15 years old, start an, uh, an internship or a traineeship. A couple of things. I won the state schoolboy championships in 73 and 75. So I was 12 and 14. Mm -hmm. I could only basically win those every second year because Peter Senior had a lock on it every year. <laughs> so when, when I wasn't in his age group, I could win and he because he's a year, year and a half older than me and he was such a great young player and played well on the Champions Tour, as you know, mm -hmm. and as well as around the world for the last four decades. But anyway, I decided to do the, the apprenticeship and become a professional because I knew I was going to do it eventually. I wanted to always turn pro and I figured for the next three years, I'm going to have to do something really special if I'm ever going to make the state junior team or the state amateur team. So why don't I get a head start on all of those guys and turn pro now? I'll forego that opportunity, which was always going to be hard for me anyway, being in a remote area. Mm -hmm. So I chose at that age, at 15, and my mum and dad, God bless them, let me go and said, look, if you don't do well, 
you can always come back to school. You're still so young. I'd only just turned 15 when I left. So that was the start of it. And then it was the f- oh, probably six or seven years of struggling and, and you know, spending $15,000 a year to make 10 on the mini tours. You know, those sorts of years toughened me up. And there was many times when I wanted to give it away, but friends and peers would say, you're crazy. You got this gift. You know, you got to don't give it away. Just keep going. It'll come. Mm-hmm. And fortunately for me, and I don't want to jump ahead again, but the great Peter Thompson, who uh, unfortunately passed away a couple of days ago with Parkinson's, he'd been struggling for the last four years, was a great mentor to me and, and one that really got me from that doubting myself that I could ever make it to really thinking, wow, you know, maybe I can. And uh, he was probably the greatest single influence I taught myself to play reading Jack Nicholas's book, Golf My Way, and that was my coach for, you know, almost a decade. And then along came one of the greatest players of all time who encouraged me and saw a, a gift, an ability, whatever it may have been, and he helped me. So that was really when I started to think, wow, maybe I really can play this game in the early 80s. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you, you, you say something there that kind of brings to mind a statement that I'll use from time to time, actually quite often, is that excellence is forged in the fire of struggle. And you mentioned there that it was five to seven years of you felt like hard work, a commitment of time at 15 years old to, I have to do something in order to raise my standard. And that was apply more time. So that was dropping out of school. And you were supported by parents saying, by giving you a runway, basically, that said, we'll give you this time and, and space to explore this thing of golf because you can always come back to school so there was a backup plan right there and then friends and friends and the the greater influence of the environment saying yeah don't give up on it go get it but Mm. specifically um, mr thompson tell us about that first meeting with with peter and how the how the relationship uh, evolved from there well i i would speak to him at tournaments he was a wonderful player and had won all over the world in five open championships but in the late 70s early 80s, he, he didn't play a lot, but he did a lot of the television at home and he was always around. He was the president of the PGA of Australia mm-hmm. and he was always around and he was always encouraging and wonderful pearls of wisdom that he would pass on. And I just was fortunate enough to get to know him and and he, whether or not he saw something special or whether he just liked the fact that I was always there with uh, eyes and ears open always requesting uh, information, and he gave me some tips and worked with me for a while on a driving range down in New Zealand at the end of 1982 and and changed the shape of my swing, and I worked hard on it for the next year or so and won the New Zealand Open, was my first win at the end of the next year, that a year after that work, and that set me off. It, I was in the top five in the money list, list in Australia, and I got an invite to the Open Championship. And I played four days at the Open Championship practice rounds with Peter Thompson, Kel Nagel, and Graham Marsh. And you're speaking to the 1984 Open Championship at St Andrews? Yes. Yeah. And that was the start of when I really believed that, hey, I've won a few tournaments back home. I know I can play this game. But having the confidence of those three great players, uh, specifically the Open Champions, Kel Nagel and Peter Thompson, guiding me around and I had Arnold Palmer's caddy the first two days Tip Anderson caddied for me the first two times I ever played St Andrews so (laughs) that's a special story in itself just amazing so anyway that tournament 
was really the catalyst for me getting to goal setting to win the Open Championship rather than goal setting, hope I get good enough where I can play in the Open Championship. So I had achieved a set of goals to get me there. And then I rewrote all my goals and self-beliefs to get to that next step. How uh, foundational is it that process as a young, from a young boy, I guess, uh, or when did that goal setting emerge? Uh, goal setting started early 80s when uh, a friend of mine said, look, you, you're sort of floundering around here on the mini tours. You've got to set a path. You know, he just started talking to me. Where, where do you want to go? What do you want to do? Write your goals down. You know, write yourself affirmations, put put affirmations on the on the bathroom door, on the fridge, you know, in, in, in your scorecard, in your back pocket, put positive affirmations in there and, and goals. And that changed my, my patterns, if mm-hmm. you will. Yeah. Things, things that kids in high school are getting given now by coaches like yourself, we had to learn those things. And sometimes you didn't have a Peter Thompson to give you a hand or, or a hand up. Uh, you had to figure it out. There was no launch monitors telling you why you kept spinning your three irons so much that you couldn't get it to go more than 190 yards. You know, mm-hmm. that was, you had to figure it out. And uh, I was just fortunate along the way, I guess, that my inquisitive nature and desire to get better came along and, and met various people that, that guided me three, through certain stages. And the goal setting was essential. Wayne Grady was a big goal setter as well, 1990 PGA champion. And, uh, you know, Wayne's four years older than me. He was off playing state golf and competitive golf and then turned pro and, and played well right from the start. He was a very good player and someone I, I watched uh, closely. But he too was a, a really high goal setter. And mm-hmm. uh, I, I think we might have passed that on to a lot of the younger fellas coming through now uh, via our coaches and via our certain ways. But um, at our age, back in the... In the late 70s, early 80s, it wasn't really spoken about that much. Yeah, indeed. I think you're spot on right there that my exposure to, uh, we'll call it um, high caliber traits or the actions, the daily processes, routines, habits, however you want to term it, comes from learning from players such as yourself. And oftentimes, the uh, what comes out of the applied domain, meaning the performers in any sport or, or, or even in business, then informs the scientific community to identify what those best practices are. And certainly we have a leg up on players such as yourself that had to figure these things out uh, on the way. And that's the whole premise behind or the ethos behind doing what we're doing here with the Earn Your Edge podcast is trying to understand what those important facets or factors are and can we embed these into uh, the development process of players that players that we coach, and even those players that we don't coach, those players or um, people generally, humans, if you will, that just mm-hmm. listen to this and try and pick up tidbits of uh, routine and habit that then improve their lives. So just catching up chronologically, at seventy in nineteen seventy nine, you were nineteen years old, and that's when you became a touring professional. And correct me as I move through this here, and then through the early eighties. You're developing your game through the Australasian Mini Tours. You go down in 83 and you win the New Zealand Open, and that gives you entry into the Open Championship at 1984. And I think there's a really important story to tell here, and that's you held the lead in your first Open Championship through 36 holes and then through 54 holes. Can you explain what that was like 
and then explain what changed for you about that final round, given that you were so still um, green as it related to competing on the world stage. Yeah, it's an interesting look back for me when I go back to that time and realize that was the start of it all. I'd already touched on the fact that I had wonderful preparation. I was in good form. I had finished fourth in a couple of tournaments two weeks and three weeks prior. I had actually missed the cut at the Lawrence Batley on a course that I, I didn't care for too much, so it was good to get away from there and go have an extra weekend at the Open Championship. And then to have Peter and Kel and Graham Marsh take me under their wing, I couldn't have asked for a better group of players to guide me around such a great course my first time. So automatically now I'm in a great comfort zone. I feel good. I've had Tip Anderson's advice. I've had six Open Champions advice. You know, I've had all of this stuff. So main thing was just go play the way you're playing was what they kept telling me. So I did, and I shot 68, 66, 71, was in the last group playing with Tom Watson the last day. And it's it's funny, Tom came onto the tee and he said, uh, hi, I'm Tom Watson. And I, I looked at my caddy, I'm like, yes, sir, I know. Um, <laughs> he said, this is the first tee of the last round of the Open Championship. If you're not nervous, you're not human. <laughs> and I, Great advice. Exact, exact words. And I, I looked at my caddy and I put my hand out and I wasn't shaking at all. I was just this young kid going out to play golf again with the, one of the most famous golfers of all time, Tom Watson, who was looking for three in a row and six opens mm -hmm. that, that day. So I didn't know I was nervous, but obviously I was. And the results on the first hole where I hit a great three wood and a beautiful little nine iron that landed next to the pin and actually landed in a soft spot in one of the depressions and spun back 10 or 15 feet into the burn. Mm. And you know that green well, and that yes. green does not spin back. That is like a tarmac. But I've unfortunately hit a little depression where, where a hose had been left the night before. The greenkeeper came and apologized to me years later and said, that was my fault, I blah, 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 blah. Anyway, another story. <laughs> That's an amazing so story. <laughs> now, I've got a, now I've chip and putt from there for five. So I'm still okay. I'm not thinking like I've done anything bad. The commentators on TV are probably saying, oh, here we go, the demise of the young Aussie. But I just remember back, I'd got to the uh, 12th tee and I was nine, eight or nine over par. And I thought, oh, my God, I feel like I just teed off. Everything was a rush, a blur. I was 23. My caddy, who I just started working with that week, I picked him up after Tip had to go and work with Arnold, young Wobbly, he was younger than me. So between us, we had zero experience at handling something like this. And I, I played the last six holes two under to finish in the top 10, but the damage had been done early. You know, I just, I, I just couldn't uh, get back into my own comfort zone. And I didn't feel, I wasn't like shaky, nervous or worried or anything. It just, uh, the ball kicked right into the trees instead of left onto the fairway or, you know, the putt lipped out instead of going in and it, all of a sudden it added up. And I think that's what happens when pressure takes hold. When you're young, you don't really understand it because you haven't experienced it. But sometimes you need someone there that can just say, hey, settle down a little bit. Let's walk a little slower. Let's get there after Tom gets there. Let's not try and race him to the green. And things that I've learned over the years, I didn't realize were going on at that time. So the difference was I'm enjoying myself. I'm doing what I do. I'm playing my game. I'm leading the Open Championship. Look at my name on the leaderboard to watching my name gradually get taken down until it wasn't even on the leaderboard 
by the 13th hole and understanding then that, hey, there's nothing to lose now. Let's just go play golf again. And uh, Tom would have loved my last five holes. He would have, he'd have six open championships now instead of just five. Sure. Because um, he, he, with the pressure of trying to win that one, I watched him over the closing holes thinking, oh, boy, I, I wish he could just relax and do what I'm doing because I think he made six on 17. And as we stood on 18T, Seve in his famous navy blue sweater was punching the air in, in joyous uh, victory. <laughs> remember, you remember, we all remember as golfers that, that wonderful Seve victory. And I was there with Tom, all despondent, watching it happen on the 18th tee. Mm -hmm. But uh, I learned a lot anyway. That was the day that, that got me thinking that, hey, I, I can really do this. Yeah, it's an amazing we could unpack so many things out of that experience right there. And uh, I, I want to let you know that as you're describing it, the, the hair on my arms and the back of my neck is standing up and I'm trying to put myself in those shoes. And then as you describe the picture of standing on 18th tee and watching the Seve punch the air in his uh, patented celebration, I think anyone who's ever watched golf and watched uh, the, the, the archives of Seve Ballesteros can, um, can immediately uh, bring that picture to mind. Mm. You, you mentioned something that I want to unpack a little bit more. And uh, your attitude changed on hole 12 slash 13 where you said, I, I don't have anything to lose right now. Was that actually going through your mind at any point in those first uh, 11, 12 holes? Yes, from, from memory, and it's certainly not vivid memories because, you know, as you know, we all try and block out the, the bad times and think in positive fashion to the good. But in, in learning from that later and from what other people told me, I was rushed. Uh, the swing wasn't as smooth. The, the attitude changed. I mean, the look on my caddy's face was one of shock horror rather than smiling and joking, you know, because he could see what was going on but didn't really have the experience to, to know what to say. Mm -hmm. And nor, nor would I expect him to, by the way. I don't, I'm not blaming him at right. any stretch. Wobbly was a great caddy and still is uh, and has won many major championships since, by the way. So he... Uh, it was, we were just young and, and fresh and didn't really know and uh, it was it was nerves and, and not being able to slow myself down and, and think. And it, when I, I think back to Jordan last year at Royal Birkdale and how he had the ability to calm himself down with all of that going on on the 13th hole over there with the drop to make the world's greatest bogey of all time and then... What did he play the last five holes, two or three under to win or four under or something to win? Birdie, eagle, birdie, birdie, par. That's five under mm -hmm. in those next few holes. After all that was going on, mm -hmm. I didn't have the ability to do that at that point. Same age, but totally different uh, mental ability mm -hmm. and uh, bag of tricks, you know, ability and, and what he'd learnt and how he's handled situations. You know, right. That, that's what I needed at that time, and I just didn't have it.
when you say bag of tricks, I would redefine that as separating skills and those skills are learned. They're not inherent. Uh, going back to one of the first comments in the intro role there, is it by nature or by nurture? And most definitely what you're describing, which is Jordan's experience, which is the experience that we see from amazing players, whether they be 12 years old or 65 years old, as we have contact with um, even players that are playing the Champions Tour these days, is that these things are learned over time. They're learned through experience. They're learned through putting yourself to the fire and sometimes when you're close to the fire you do get burned but through that challenge through those challenging situations you you develop tools tactics and attitudes and behaviors that then help you rise to the occasion so let's skip forward now 1989 you're a regular on the PGA Tour you've won you're a high performer and it's the 120th Open Championship at Birkdale and you shoot 64 in the third round and you have the lead again how is this experience different on this occasion that then caused the ultimate achievement in golf, winning a major championship? Well, seven years on, and, and I've got to add quickly too, I really learned a lot from in 1990 back at St. Andrews at the Open. I shot 64 on the Saturday and was in the last group again with Nick Faldo. So St. Andrews in 84 to St. Andrews in 90, mm -hmm. I was a different person. I didn't have a chance really to win that day unless I did something special because I believe Nick had like a three-shot lead on us and he was playing great. But I learned a lot watching Nick that day and how he handled with the pressure of it all and I was getting all frustrated with the thousands of people walking down the fairways in front of us and the TV golf carts and all that sort of stuff, throwing up dust. And it annoyed me and I couldn't really focus on the greens and I parted poorly and, and didn't win, obviously. Having that chance to be in the last group a couple of times, the next year when I shot 64 on the Saturday again to get into that final group, I was a different person. I played with Haley in the garden. My, my little two-year-old daughter was there with Jenny and I. Uh, Jenny was pregnant with Laura. So we were just there as a family. We just did everything the same as we normally do, which I had learned over the years was the only way to play well at a major championship. Hard to do, but you had to treat it like any other tournament. If you treated it any greater, the stress level was greater. It was more difficult to perform at your best with uh, high tension, mm -hmm. uh, which I'm sure that's what, what you pass on to your young charges. You know, you've, you've got to be able to, uh, to put all that aside as special as it is and as important as it is and how we grade our careers on major championship victories or performances. It's hard to say, hey, I'm just going to treat it like any other day, but that's what I did. And having that, that experience under my belt, knowing what to expect, and uh, I jumped out of the boxes because I was relaxed and played golf like I had been playing all summer, mm -hmm. and it, it ended up adding up to 29, the front nine. the front nine, nine. <laughs> yeah. so usually when you have the lead and you shoot 29 the front nine, you're in pretty good shape. <laughs> <laughs> but tell us about, as I've seen many, many an interview with you, tell us about the thoughts that were going on through your head when you saw the scoreboard on hole oh. uh, seven or eight, was it? <laughs> yeah. yeah, I walked off seven and I was five under par after seven and I thought, bloody hell, if I don't win from here, I won't be allowed back in the country. <laughs> the country of Australia, that is, right? <laughs> yeah, because I know, you know, young guys like yourself and Adam Scott tells me a story that he'd he snuck out of bed and was watching it and he and his 11-year-old buddies were all watching me win. And, you know, they're, they're the sorts of things that I remembered when I was a kid watching the greats of the game win the Open Championship or win the Masters. They're indelible moments in our upbringing and great memories. 
so I, I know, you know, as the player out there, everyone in Australia is watching me right now. And cheering I, you on. <laughs> yeah, don't, don't mess up, basically. Where did your head go when you went to that place? When you went to the place of, I better not screw this thing up. I've got the greatest opportunity I've had my entire career. I've seen this landscape two other occasions, playing in the final group, close to the lead or having the lead. Where did your head go? How did you reframe that and, and channel it back into, okay, I've got a job to do? Right, just focus. Kept doing exactly what I'd been doing. My pre-shot routine, which I think is a is an underrated part of a player's uh, performance and, and abilities, is that is the pre-shot routine and what you do time and time and time again. If you have a positive pre-shot routine, you're halfway there to being able to handle these pressures. And I focused well. I was playing with Marco Mira, who was a good friend of mine, and he walked fast as well. So we had a really good gait and a comfortable feel and flow. He was so far back, he was happy to root me on, if you would. You know, he wasn't like trying to put me off or find a way to beat me. He was just playing his game. I was playing my game. So we were both in a really good place. So that was a big assistance, I think, as well. Uh, winning a major is, is being comfortable with who you're playing with and and that whole environment. Mm-hmm. But I focused so well and I continued to hit it great. And, and really the last few holes, I was just um, fairway green, two-putt, fairway green, two-putt. D- just keep, don't do anything silly. I had four or five birdie opportunities inside 15 feet that I was happy to just roll it down. And if it didn't go in, it didn't matter. I two-putted 17 for birdie, the par five, and that put me three in front. And uh, I just played safe up the last for bogey to uh, to make sure I, I didn't do anything silly on that difficult last hole. Mm-hmm. But it, it was a, a struggle to not enjoy the moment too soon. And even even waving to the crowd coming up 18, I felt a bit strange. Like in the back of my mind, it was like, don't celebrate yet. Go do your job. Get Get the job done. I think there's a real struggle in the mind at that time when you have a lead or you've got an opportunity to do something special to be able to breathe and relax and stay cliche in the moment is essential. Having a good caddy on the bag, having a, having a good environment in the group that you're in, all that sort of stuff is a big assistance, but you have to stay shot at a time, focus on your routine, just do what you do. You can't stop any bad thoughts, but you've got to let them flow through replace the bad thoughts with a with positive ones and at the same time play your game you know you can't steer it around you know you've got to do what you do and accept the challenges along the way yeah fantastic advice there i think that's a gold nugget right there that those thoughts will come into your head and sometimes they can be positive but you're also playing forward those thoughts and you let them pass through and you describe back to yourself here that we've got a job to do still. Let's not celebrate too early. This job is not done. And that happened back on hole seven and eight. It probably happened instances in rounds one, two, and three. And that's that separating skill that allowed you to, to let's say, bring yourself back to the present rather than the road that's 100 miles ahead of you. You were looking through the windshield at the road that was 100 yards down. So you weren't mm. going to hit an obstruction on the road, the pothole that was um, that, you, that you wouldn't see. So it's amazing advice right there. I want to go back and understand what routine means to you. And I think of routines, and this is really important information for any performer out there, 
whether that be a performer in business or a performer in sport, but particularly here we're talking to largely an audience of golfers initially, is it the physical or is it the mental? Well, for you, are they both just as important because they both create this attitude of readiness? Can you unpack that? Yeah, it's it's a flow and it has to be a mixture of both mental and physical. And it's the way in which you get into the ball or into the shot the same every time. And you develop that over time into something that suits your game. And I talk about it on television all the time, watching people's routines. And I'll point to it and I'll, I'll say, you, you watch or let's watch over the last few holes if he maintains that two looks at the cup or does it become three? Or does the, does, and all of the great players do exactly the same thing every time. And it's not something you think about at the time. If you are thinking about your routine or how long it's taking you to take the club back, you're sabotaging yourself. You have no chance. Mm-hmm. If you look at all of the really wonderful players, and, and I look at Jordan with his sort of half backswing, half follow through, the amount of times I've watched him take seven practice swings as he talks to Mike on the bag before he steps into the shot, that that's a part of his getting ready. He's thinking about the shot. He's thinking about everything that's in front of him, how he's going to execute it perhaps, visualizing what he's doing, assimilating the information that's coming from Mike Grella, and then he steps up to the shot and, and he does the same thing every time. There's something in that physical and mental bond mm-hmm amalgamation, whatever it is, that as you get into the ball, you're ready to go. People say, how do you handle the pressure? How do you hit that shot over the water? 50,000 people watching and you've got to hold it to, you know, hold the putt to win. And I'm like, I'm just doing what I do every time. Or they are the great players. They are doing what they do. And this is why they practice. And this is why they train. And to be able to hit the shots at the big times, at the big moments. And yeah. some, as we all know, are, are better at it than others. But yeah. I think that routine is is key. And it's it's a developed skill, certainly a skill. Right. But it's but it's a way about us, isn't it? And slow players have a slower routine, faster play. Aaron Badley hits the putt in three and a half seconds. Mm-hmm. Some people take a little longer than others. Jason Day's probably a couple of minutes sometimes. I think he gets too slow at times. It might hold him back from from even winning more often than he does. Yeah. But he's got a mindset of, I'm not going till I'm ready. I think what you mentioned right there is critical. It's a preparedness. It's a readiness. It's a, a state of being that yes. you know, you've, you've, you've found before and therefore whatever the routine may be, physical, um, mental, uh, internal dialogue or external dialogue, as in the case of the player talking to the caddy or the player talking out loud to themselves, it's designed to set up a situation that you're familiar with, that you know you've had success from before. And that's why the routine runs the gamut of different physical manifestations and different psychological manifestations. How much is superstition or was superstition a part of, of your game? Did you always mark with the same penny? Did you have some? <laughs> <laughs> yes. It's funny, isn't it, how we all have little things. You know, some people have three white tees, and if they have four tees, it's too many. They'll throw one away. It's like a, <laughs> for many years, a decade, I, uh, I only used number one balls on Sundays. I never used number fours in the tournament. I always used my fours in practice rounds. And so when Wayne Grady and I had practice rounds, we both were always using number fours because he had the same superstition. <laughs> 
I had a, a an Australian ten cent piece that was a nineteen sixty seven that I had used when I won my first tournament, and uh, I always used that coin for a long, long time. And people would send me nineteen sixty seven ten cent pieces just so I had a you know backups. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, there was superstition, but it was it was like polishing my shoes the night before, or my favourite pink shirt or pink pants or whatever it was that I felt I had performed well in before was what I was going to continue to wear or use or proceed to do in the hopes that that feeling worked again or, you know, I was going to continue to perform well because of these things. I didn't get myself all in a tiz because I didn't have it or I'd left my 10 cent piece at home or I had four T's instead of three. That didn't really trouble me. But I did feel more comfortable when I was prepared, and I I did prepare better than most. I I was when it was time to go, I was ready to go. You know, if I had, there was no stone unturned when I was stepping onto that first tee. Yeah, and that that was a big help. Can Can we sit on that for just a second? And I guess the general question I want to ask is, when you were going about that process of getting better as, as a professional, the, the preparedness, were there certain daily things that you did outside of, I'm talking tournament golf, I'm talking about in the weeks off, whether that be traveling the European tour or Australasian or even the many years you played here in America, how did you think about getting better as a player and how did that then inform your practice? I had, uh, I had goals that were, how am I going to get to the next step? What are the things I need to do to be better at this particular aspect of my game. I putted for an hour a day. I did certain things that I knew would make me better as a player. And if I putted poorly one day, my wife, Jenny, she'd traveled with me since 1984, would stay out on that putting green until I hold 103 footers. And, um, you know, that was just the sorts of things that I had in my mind that I needed to do to be ready. And traveling back there in, in the Asian tour and the Japanese tour, it, every, it was a different life. You know, in, in Japan, the, the courses were all out in the mountains, way out of the cities. Um, no one spoke English back there in the 80s. It was, it was a grind getting around. But, uh, you know, I made sure that I had what I wanted to have for breakfast before I went there. I, I made sure I trained and practiced and stretched and did what I had to do before I got to the first tee. I mean, it was all... A process and each day and each week was built around performing at my best and getting to the next tournament and doing the same thing again mm-hmm. and it's commonplace now but it was a rarity back then and the players that did it best were the better players and it showed and uh i think now everyone does it because that information sharing as i spoke about before is available to everybody so they all have their goals and they all have their coaches and their nutritionists and everything's prepared. They are better prepared now. They're better athletes. They're stronger and fitter and more capable. Their training uh, aspects are so much more regimented and, and correct and precise. So that's why golf's in such a great place because the competition level and the standard of play is so much greater now because of all of the players before us, the Peter Thompsons and the Greg Normans and the the David Grahams and such throughout my early years, what they did best, the bits and pieces that I took from them that I tried to do that I've then passed on to the Adam Scotts and the Jason Days and the, and the younger guys, young guy like yourself as, right. as a player when you started out. Sure. 
then then you build your own little group of things that you need to do to get better, right? And that's right. the process. It, 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 almost like a personal blueprint of practice that then um, is, is kind of generated out of information you get as a player, whether that's information that comes from statistics or information you just qualitatively f know and feel because you're experiencing your own performance, right? You're at the end of the round, you would sit down with Jenny and you guys would probably talk. And that mm. discussion would be, what did I do well? And what did I, what do I need to improve on? And then that then in turn informed those things you didn't practice. I think it's a fantastic insight. I would love to have your table of elements. <laughs> <laughs> when I first saw this about four or five years ago, I thought, how wonderful is that? The athletes factors, the coaching factors, and then the other factors in between, you know, the, the mum and dad, the competition, the, the peers, the, the culture, even down to chance and luck. You know, I would have loved to have had that. I had my own little archaic little system of things and, and way of scoring and, and ways of improving and goal setting. But had I had that and a, and a guide like yourself, wow. What an impressive way that what you're passing on to your students is the the roadmap to Thank you. greatness. It really is. It's and it's but it's for everybody too. It's a good thing to pass on to the team and the family and let them understand that there's thirty different things that factor into this. It's just not oh, he's got to spend three hours a day on the range or he'll never get any good. It's those days are gone. It's, yeah. uh, there's so much to it now. I think you bring up a great point right there. It's so easy to point a finger at what we can see happening on the golf course and saying that's the reason for poor performance. And whilst we do hit poor shots, shots that go offline and putts that miss, and those are the reasons we sign for a score that's greater than what we want to sign for at the end of the round, oftentimes it's happening as a result of things that are not visible, isn't it? So yes. let, let's be mindful of the inordinate number of factors that are influencing a player's performance, both positively and negatively, and try and manage those as best we can. And Cam, that's, that's what I try and do just quickly on, on television. In my heart, I am still a player. When I'm looking down and, and commenting on these players, A, I want to try and get to know them as well as I can and and, and see who their coach is or who their caddy is and that relationship and their family. And I try and understand them as best I can. And there's so many young ones coming through. It's not easy to get to know them all, but I, I do my best. And it's um, I want to be able to explain to people, it's very easy to say, boy, that was a bad shot. Why was it a bad shot? What was going through his head? He hasn't had a great year. He just needs a top 10 this week to get in next week. You know, whatever it might be. Mm -hmm. He might have been in a shitty lie there or he might have, you know, wanted to lay up to the left and he just got unlucky and plugged in that bunker. I mean, this has to be a reason why mm -hmm. the best players in the world don't hit their best shot all the time. And mm -hmm. that's what I'm trying to explain to people on TV, exactly what you're saying. There's, there's, there's pressure and, and different things that factor in to performance on the day or in the week and performance on any particular shot. Anyone who plays a sport of golf or any sport for that matter, at any level you've played it, has to deal with performance under pressure. And so the first question I have for you is, where in your mind does pressure come from? And then the second part, what did you find was the most effective versus the least effective in terms of dealing with the pressure when the stakes were high? So first off, where does it come from? Pre pressure is really mostly what you put on yourself and how you deal with it. And I have two ways of looking at this. I have the pre-1995 Ian Baker Finch who handled pressure well and 
stuck to my routine and did everything I could possibly do to not allow pressure to get to me and just play the shot at hand. And then I have the last two years that I played where I didn't make a cut and I stepped away from the game because I couldn't figure it out. And it was getting me down and I'd rather be at home with my young family than away bashing my head against a wall where I couldn't get out of my head the pressure of a particular shot. And it, be- and it manifested in my whole being that whenever there was trouble down the left side, I struggled with the shot. And my problem was I challenged that fear all the time rather than hitting the four iron down the right side in the fairway. I'd try and hit the driver like I always used to be able to. And hence, you know, a couple of times a day I'd hit it out of bounds and that's pretty hard to make the cut when you're having four penalty shots a day. Mm-hmm. So I see it from both sides and I think it's why I'm, I'm good at the announcing side of things with the player's perspective in mind that, hey, when you're doing well and, and you're Jordan Spieth and Justin Thomas and Dustin Johnson and Jason Day and you're winning all the time or Tiger Woods for 10 years where he won a third of his tournaments, it's easy to be in a good frame of mind and, and uh, handling the pressure well because you're practiced at it and you're doing it all the time. And the same thing happens for those that are struggling, that it's hard to get out of your mind the struggles. Media keep asking you about it every day. They add to the pressure. Maybe your family's not as understanding as you'd like them to be when you come home every Friday night. You know, All of those things add up to how you handle the situation. But there's so much information now and so many wonderful coaches and people that can help, psychologists, etc. There's really no excuse to not have the right information. But you have to internalize it. You have to be able to put it on the ground. You have to be able to, to, to do what needs to be done. And uh, it's not easy. You know, whether it's the, the breathing, the way you you'd handle the, the, the shot with your, your routine, stepping into the shot, all of those sorts of things, you have to play each shot the same every time. And if something gets in the way of that flow, you're in trouble. Mm-hmm. How often when the stakes were high, would you give yourself a talking down or a talking to that was relatively stern when maybe you were moving to a place of uh, the voice in your head giving you a degree of self-doubt? Mm, I think getting angry with yourself is is emotionally tanking it. It's like kind of giving up in a way. But then other people give themselves a stern talking to and it, and it G's them up and gets them going again. And mm-hmm. I unfortunately got to the point where I was embarrassed to be out there the way I hit it sometimes because I had been a, a straight driver and a, and a good player for a while. And when I played poorly, I was embarrassed that people were watching me. I think had I been able to be angry or tougher to myself or whatever it might have been i may have handled that situation better than i ended up doing it but hey uh, at the end of the day everything's worked out well at the time it was a difficult transition but it's um it's something i look back on now and it and it helps me in understanding what other players are going through and uh i would love to have had as i said your ability as a coach and all of those elements that you have that you pass on to your people, I would love to have had that at the time and and a more single-minded guidance Mm -hmm. because if you're searching all the time, you're going backwards. And I went to see every coach and I tried to get as much help as I possibly could from from every different aspect rather than just sticking to the one plan and, and doing what I did. And I see that now looking in from high above and, you know, my many years of experience, I would have done something different uh, now, knowing what we all know now. 
For sure. You mentioned a word there that is the kryptonite to high performance, in my opinion, and that's the, the expression of any sense of possible embarrassment, any sense of possible my self-image is damaged because of what I give power to from the outside. And there's an, there's an expression that's used in Texas. It's called your give a shitter, which is essentially the collective of how much do I care? Mm hmm or how much I allow the noise from the outside, the perception of outside opinions to influence what I believe in as an individual and how that affects my self-image and self-efficacy. Would you agree that a general concept, a separating skill and a high-performance behavior, therefore, is an ability to mute that noise that you um, allow to be heard from the outside, that noise then you allow to have power over you? Yeah, that's uh, <laughs> that's so appropriate. You have to you have to be able to to perform at a high level, and uh, it's it's a tricky one because uh, a couple of sports psychologists, Bob Rotella, tried to help me a lot and, and did over the time. He was, he was wonderful. He would say, "When you finally learn to care less, you'll get through this." Mm -hmm. Basically, he said, I, "The only thing I want you to try hard at." is to try hard at trying less. And it was really hard for me to understand it at the time, but it's it's a part of that uh, that term you use, the Texas term. You know, it's mm -hmm. you have to – you obviously give a shit or you wouldn't be out there and you wouldn't be as good as you are, <laughs> but you have to learn to uh, put that aside when it comes to the pressure of a certain situation or a period of time that you might be struggling or even a full season, or whatever it might be. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of lot of aspects go into that, isn't there? And, and how you deal with yourself. And I always say to my, you know, young players, pros, some of them that I try and help and mentor and, and give my, you know, advice from years of experience. Be kind to yourself, because no one else out there cares. Peter Thompson once said to me, I, I was complaining to him because I'd had a six at the last, still a good score, and. He said, you know, there's 144 players in this field and six of them couldn't give a shit. Uh, sorry, four, 72 of them couldn't give a shit and the other 72 wish he'd had seven. <laughs> and, and it was his way of saying, hey, no one cares, buddy, only you and your family. And you have to, you have to deal with that and you have to be kind to yourself because no one else is going to be. Oh, you said it beautifully. Be kind to yourself. Give yourself the grace. And those words from Bob Rotella echo in my head. You know what you should try hard at? Try hard at caring less. That's, uh, that's, a, that's a great way to put a bow in that, um, how to deal with pressure. So on the other side of pressure is confidence. Where did your confidence come from? Well, uh, confidence comes from experience and, uh, and climbing the ladder and, and practicing hard and, and hitting the shots and learning to hit the shots under pressure. So the more times you perform well under pressure, the more confidence you gain. And that's why I said mentioned Tiger before. He played in the last group every time he played for 10 years. So no wonder he got so good. He kept building more and more building blocks of, of great performance. And the guys that continue to play well and, you know, so well with Jordan, if you're playing well, your confidence is high and you just keep getting more confident because you keep winning and playing well and hitting the shots under pressure. And whether they call that the zone or not, I'm not sure. But getting back into that when you're having a tough time is the hard part. Mm -hmm. how, do, how do I recreate that high level of confidence when things haven't been going so well or I missed the last four-foot putt? 
I would always try and remember the last part I hold like this rather than think about the part that I may have missed. Things like that, just uh, little little toys, little tricks to um, try and have that buoyant feeling of, hey, I'm the best in the world, rather than, oh, I missed that last one. You know, it's a totally different feel. Sure, sure. Just, just a few more. You mentioned a word before, giving, and that's who I know you to be. And you've been amazingly giving with your time to this point. And uh, we've certainly over-exceeded what, I, what my ask was. And so, thank you for that. But I don't think we can call the conversation uh, complete unless we explore what I feel to be your hard-earned talent. And some may even say, watching you, your gift. And your gift has not only been one of the most elegant swings that's ever played the game, but just as much and um, probably even more so from a skill standpoint, the amazing putting performance, the amazing putting stroke that you have. What advice could you offer that generalizes what it's like to be be one of the best putters that's ever played the game? And how did that come about, if you will? I think Green reading and and things that are inherent in becoming a good putter are somewhat um, a given talent. You can you can learn various aspects of the short game and putting, and train them and perfect them and and become better at certain things. But some people just see greens better than others. So I think it's hard to make an average putter a great putter. But I think you can make an average putter a good putter with training and skill improvement. Someone that's really a long hitter and, and fast and quick and hits the ball an immense distance, that's an impossible skill to teach. I, there's no way I could learn to hit like Brooks Kepka or Dustin Johnson. I could go to the gym and try and get as strong, whether or not I ever could, I doubt that very much, but I could get stronger and try and hit it farther because I was stronger and more capable. But to me, that's a skill. That's a real talent to have that ability to hit the ball with a lot of speed, or to be able to do what Bubba Watson does. That's that's just a God-given talent. You can hone those skills and become better, and I think the same with putting. I wouldn't go to the stroke and try and perfect someone's stroke. I always see it more from the, the artistry side. How do I see the greens? How do I feel when I get on the green? How am I reading them? To me, if you stand very still and very square to the line of a putt, and you stay still and allow that putter to swing back and forth like a pendulum, there's not a lot can go wrong. So you could perfect that. But if you can't read the greens or you don't have a positive attitude or you don't have a, a, a feel for it, you're not going to become a great putter. You might get better. But to me, there's a lot more in training the skills with drills and making you better at the things that you need to be improve that can be done and that that is a big part of it rather than just standing there on a mirror trying to perfect a stroke because it's like trying to make someone swing the same as somebody else because they do it so well everyone has their own frailties and their own things that are that are really good and strong and i would work on that i'm sure you'd agree with me there's so much in putting that is positive thoughts seeing the ball going in visualizing the line of the putt being able to reduce anxiety with certain drills that we may pass on to our players. Those things are so much more important than having the perfect stroke or trying to achieve a perfect stroke or trying to get the eyes over the ball or all of the things that I see lesser ability putters Mm -hmm. trying to achieve. 
And if you just watch good putters, how they go about putting and watch their traits and watch their their flow and their routines and how they practice, that would be what I would get someone to do to become better at, at putting. Yeah. Another great thing that Bob Rotella once said, and I've passed it on to everyone I ever can, is only eat out with the good putters because the good putters have the best attitudes. <laughs> don't, you know, don't go out with the grumpy guy that missed a putt on the last because he'll drag you down at dinner as well. Yeah. Go out with the good putters. And that, that's so true, don't you think, that oh, the guys that are good putters have such a great attitude. Yeah, anytime I've ever, as you just described, had a conversation with, asked the question of what is it like to be a great putter? Very rarely has the answer uh, started uh, or had embedded into it. I've worked so hard on my technique. Technique, sure, is a, is a part of it. But just as Arnold Palmer spoke, swing your swing. Yes. It, it, the, the same is true in putting. Stroke your stroke. Stand with your posture. Find what's unique about you and then expand your skill, refine your skill within those confines. And so I, I couldn't agree with you more. There needs to be a foundation, but that foundation is unique to you as an individual. And then beyond that, it's about learning to react to your environment uh, from a speed standpoint and a brake standpoint, which are tied together. So what you just described in terms of the psychology of great putting is very, very important as well. A follow-up question and this is kind of a collective of what makes great players great. With your role in broadcast, you have the perspective of a player, which is amazing. One of the world's best who strived for improvement to be the best. And as you think back on your experience and marry that with your broadcast work, you get this amazing perspective to look through a different lens. What do you feel are the key factors that differentiate good from great players and then great from world-class? And what I'm really getting at here is for those in the audience are trying to move from, I'm a decent high school player, I'm a really good college player, but yet I want to be a Rory McIlroy or a Dustin Johnson as world number one or a Greg Norman as world number one or a Tiger Woods as world number one. You've had that perspective. What could you offer them? Oh boy, there's so many aspects. I, I would say train well, efficiently, practice hard, but effectively make sure your practice counts every ball counts in practice don't just go wasting time rake hit rake hit rake hit do all of the things that you need to do well to improve and do them well do them properly stick with one trainer stick with one coach get yourself in a good place mentally all of those sorts of things are so it's all of that information is available now and you have to find someone that you're comfortable with, a caddy that you're comfortable with that can help you. All of those aspects that go into being better and then hopefully becoming a champion and a winner and, a, and then maybe even a world champion, all of those things have to be a process and planned. And why not, if you're going to spend time doing something, why not do it properly? Mm -hmm. Why not? Uh, it has to be fun along the way as well. Don't You can't grind on kids and and make them do things. They have to love that. There's an inherent love of the game that gets you to that next level as well. You can't train someone that hates the game to be a, a great player, I don't believe, because why would they put the work and the effort in? You know, are you offering a, a carrot or are you using the stick? What, what's, the, what's getting them there? Right. You, you, to me, that improvement and that pathway needs to be planned. Yeah, I, I, th I think it's fantastic.
what you just described to me there there is that there needs to be a purpose uh, an inner fire and for me it's purpose that that is the engine that drives elite performance and then there's the if you're going to do something it's worth doing really well it's the application to your craft and the commitment to that journey of mastery and then what you just described there also kind of unpacking it is so important it's having a a group of support around you and finding that right caddy and finding that right coach so as a follow-up there how did you go about that process so what, what advice probably a better way to ask it would you tell parents or players in terms of finding that right coach what's the metrics for selection oh that that's a tricky one because everyone has different avenues depending on what school they're at or you know, the internet is such a wonderful resource now of being able to search out and find where your PGA professional is located. And, and uh, you know, most clubs will have some sort of junior program that allow kids to, to get to that next level and, and get that, uh, that advice that, that they're searching for. So that would be my thing, that there's, in Australia, there's different pathways through institutes of sport, you know, government-funded programs. Here we have wonderful college programs. You know, look look for a college that you might like to go to that has a coach that you like the sound of or just hearing, reading as much as you can on the internet, I think these days is the way to go and then make a plan and include your, your local PGA Pro in that plan. Great advice, great advice. One final question. If there was one ask or challenge or one final recommendation for our audience, an audience of those that are on this journey to mastery, mastery, be it in sport, business, or, or life, what would that ask, challenge, or recommendation be? Oh, in, enjoy what you're doing. You know, smell the roses along the way. Be kind to yourself and do do your best, obviously, and, and uh, set, set a goal and pathway to the success of each goal. You, you have to do that to get better. Yeah. But uh, in, enjoy the process, and and if it's golf related, just love the game and enjoy yourself when you're out there. Because it's, uh, you know, golf is a game of life, and it's just you learn something new every day. Well, Finchie, I've enjoyed the process of idolising you. I thank you for who you are as um, an altruistic, giving individual, and collectively, I can speak for everyone that watches you on TV that what that has watched you. Uh, play golf for uh, the many decades that you've been competing at this great game. Uh, I think I can say that we thank you from the bottom of our hearts. So, oh, thank you. We appreciate it. And uh, this has been the Earn Your Edge podcast with Finchie, Ian Baker Finch. Thanks very much, mate. I really enjoyed it. Thanks very much for listening to this episode. If you want to learn more about Altus Performance, go check out altusperformance.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at Team Altus and Instagram at Altus Performance. Also, thanks to Cordy Walker for his wonderful production work on this and coming episodes of Earn Your Edge.